I heard the story once of a man who went to Korea to do some work. He entered into a crowded subway and there was only one seat available. And he sat down in that seat next to a Korean man. And this man only knew one sentence in Korean, and that sentence was, I do not know how to speak Korean. So as he sat down, the Korean man started talking to him. And the man looked at him and said in, Kore- in Korean, I do not know how to speak Korean. And the Korean man looked at him, and he began talking again. And so again, the man looked at him and said, I do not know how to speak Korean. Well, again, the Korean man begins to speak. And finally, there was a word that he thought he heard. And he looked at the Korean man and he said, Yesu. And the Korean man got excited and started pounding his chest. Yesu, Yesu, Yesu. And the rest of the ride, these two men who could not communicate, who could not speak in the right language with one another, for the rest of that train ride, there was a connection that transcended across language. There was a connection between believers. And that Korean man pulled out a large Korean Bible which he treasured from his bag. And he turned to a passage. And he pointed to it in 1 John 3 and verse 14. And the other man was on a mission trip. He happened to have a Bible. He pulled it out too. And this is what it says. We know that we've passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. There is an instant oneness. Even when you cannot speak the language between God's people. The bond of Christ extends past the divisions of culture and maturity and gender and traditions and wealth and even geography. We are united in this bond with every child everywhere. I like how the psalmist describes that in the 133rd Psalm. You want to turn over there and read with me what David wrote? He said, Behold, 133rd Psalm, Behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. It is like the precious oil on the head running down on the beard, on the beard of Aaron, running down on the collar of his robe. It is like the dew of Hermon which falls on the mountains of Zion. For there the Lord has commanded the blessing, life evermore. How good and how pleasant it is when brothers dwell together in unity. I want you to think about something. Everything in our life as God's children and as a church, as His people, as a local body, comes down to us being in tune with one cord, the cord of Yesu, of Jesus. I want you to imagine for a moment a room full of pianos that are out of tune. And an expert is hired to come into that room and he is hired to tune the pianos. How does he do that? Does he go to the first piano and pull out a pitchfork or a, or a pitch pipe or some tuning device and tune the first piano and then move to the second piano and tune that piano to the first piano? No. Because what happens is if he keeps tuning from piano to piano to piano, they still won't be in tune. He goes to every 
piano with the same tuning fork. And he tunes every piano to the same standard. And only when he does that can they be in perfect harmony. That's what we are. If we try to tune ourselves to one another or to the eldership or to preachers or, or whatever it may be, if we try to tune ourselves to anything but God and Jesus Christ, we will never be in tune. We must be in tune with Yesu, Jesus the Christ. Before we go to Joshua, I want you to turn for a moment to John chapter 17. And I want you to notice from John chapter 17 that you, everyone in this room, you are mentioned in Scripture. That you are a part of the Bible. You are in there. In this section of John 17, which is really the Lord's Prayer, in the first five verses, Jesus prays for Himself. And then from about verse 6 through 19, He prays for His disciples. But then in verse 20, I want, to know, want you to notice what he prays for. Starting in verse 20 of John chapter 17. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they may also be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me the glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one so that the Lord may know that you sent me and love them even as you've loved me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you've given me, may be with me where I am to see my glory that you've given me because you've loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you. And these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name. I will continue to make it known that the love that which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. Did you notice that you are there in that Scripture? He says there, all of those who believe from here on, not these only, but those who believe in me through their word, that they may all, in verse 21, be one. In verse 22, that they may all be one as you and I are one. In verse 23, that they may be perfected in unity. Here is Jesus getting ready to, to leave this earth, and He knows what is coming. What is His prayer? That the disciples then, and the disciples to come, which is us now, may be perfect in unity. Jesus is praying, pull them together. Make them one. So important is it that He says it three times. You may have figured out by now I use the ESV, and I, I really like that translation. But in verse 23, I want you to listen to what the NIV says. May they be brought to the complete unity to let the world know that you sent me and have loved them even as you've loved me. Have you ever thought about that? The announcement that we make to the world that echoes around the world, that cannot escape, that when we are one with Christ, what it really says is it not only proclaims our unity as a body, it produces a recognizable difference between our life and theirs. And it is one that people go, I don't understand what it is. What's so different about them? And Jesus says it is that unity and that lifestyle that will cause them to realize that God sent Him. We and our unity... And our love for one another, as he said in John 13, it serves as proof to the world that Jesus is the Son of God. 
And could it be that the reason so many do not believe in Him is because we're not who we're supposed to be? You know who else heard that prayer in John 17? Satan did. I'm convinced that Jesus, when He said that, the moment that the devil heard those words, I'm convinced He rolled up His sleeves and He realized what He had to do was go to work, to attempt to, to do the very thing, to oppose what Christ has asked for. If Christ is asking for unity, what does Satan want? He wants disunity. He wants division. And he started slugging it out from that day forward. And it seems like in some ways he's accomplished great, great ground in that area. One of the consensuses of the National Association of Evangelicals says that out of 35,000 churches, there are 35 different denominations. Jesus prayed that we would be one. And yet there are 35 different groups that claim to be divisions instead of being one. That's not what Jesus had in mind. That friction and that frayed family of God is a problem. And it's even a problem sometimes when it appears that unity is present. Sometimes we think unity is present, and it's not really unity, it's forced unity. You know, one person once admitted unity, uh, my church has unity, we're frozen together. Unity is living and breathing and moving. It's coming together for a common purpose. I want you to notice a group of united people. And we're going to pick off where we left off yesterday in Joshua chapter 1. And I want you to notice a few things. Several principles, and the first of those is that these Hebrew people show unity in the fact that they rallied around their leaders without fear, including Joshua and the Lord. And we begin in Joshua chapter 1 and verses 16 through 18, exactly where we left off. And notice what he says. They answered Joshua, all that you've commanded us we will do. Wherever you send us we will go. As we obeyed Moses in all things, so we will obey you. Only may the Lord your God be with you as he was with Moses. Whoever rebels against your commandment and disobeys your words, whatever you command him to be put to death, only be strong and courageous. They promise here cooperation. We will do. Availability. We will go. Commitment. We will obey. Loyalty. Whoever doesn't rebel is only put to death. And they give encouragement. Be strong and courageous. You notice that they aren't here saying, come on, aren't we there yet? Isn't this over with? I mean, we ought to. What's taking so long? They didn't do that. In fact, what I find interesting is that the people encourage their leadership. They encourage Joshua. Let me ask you a question. Don't you think that's rare? How, how many congregations have you been a part of that people commonly met with the elders or the preacher to tell them how great of a job they're doing? The reality is, besides the often gratuitous good sermon at the door, most special called meetings are for what purpose? Criticism. Negativism. Problems. We want to complain. When was the last time that you sat down with the elders, maybe at your home, maybe just went up to them and said, you know, I really appreciate the job you're doing and the sacrifice and the commitment you're making to lead this flock. 
you think about it in other areas, how often is it that the students in a, in a secular classroom go up to the teacher to say, thank you for what you're doing? Or how often is it that you call the principal just to tell them how well the school is run? We don't do that. Is it common in your workplace to hear people speak favorably of their supervisors? No, it's usually how bad the boss is. Why is it that we're always quick to complain, but we're not quick to affirm and encourage? Why is it that we're better at criticizing than encouraging? These people are a fresh example to this, this exception to the rule. The idea is they're saying, we'll do what you do. You'll be strong and courageous. You don't worry about us. We're on your side, Joshua. We're not here to tear you down. Leadership needs that. They need that guidance and that direction and that encouragement, that submission, that, that willingness, that verbal willingness to go where you go and do what you tell us to do. I want us to look at the remainder of our time, three battles, and we begin with the battle of, of Jericho. And up until now, this trip for this generation has been pretty easy once they've taken over and Joshua's taken over, they've not fought that much. They fought on the other side of the Jordan, but it wasn't that difficult. And now they come across, before Joshua chapter 6, they come across and they just walk across the Jordan River on dry ground, just like their ancestors did, the Red Sea. Everything's been pretty easy. In comparison, though, with the tough, resilient forces of Canaan, who've had time, by the way, to get prepared for the people of Israel. We know from the spies that they know what's coming. Rahab's craftiness shows us that they are scared, but they're fortifying themselves. They're arming themselves. They're getting ready for the battle. They know it's going to be tough, but they're going to fight it. And here comes this seemingly unorganized band of nomads who've been wandering for 40 years, and they're going to take Jericho, a great city with great walls. And these walls had to be intimidating. From what we can tell, they're three stories high and 18 feet thick. Can you imagine? The first place you're going to go is against a city with three story high walls and 18 feet thick. How are you going to take that? And in Joshua chapter 6, we see that God comes to Joshua and says, Look, I've got a plan. Don't worry about this. Look at verses 1 and 2. It says, Jericho was shut up inside and outside because of the people of Israel. See, they're ready. None went out, none came in, and the Lord said to Joshua, See, I have given Jericho into your hand with its king and mighty men of valor. Continue on in verse 3 and hear the plan. You shall march around the city, all the men of war going around the city once. Thus you shall do for six days, seven priests shall bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark. On the seventh day, you shall march around the city seven times, and the priests shall blow the trumpets. And when they make a long blast with the ram's horn, when you hear the sound of the trumpet, then all the people shall sound with a great shout, and the wall of the city will fall down flat, and the people shall go up, everyone straight before him. Now, I'm no military expert, but I have to say that if I'm a leader and I get direction from the general, if you will, that the plan is we're going to walk around the city for six days once. And on the seventh day, we're going to go seven times, and that seventh time when they blow the horns, we're all going to shout. And that's going to take the city. I have to view that with a little skepticism. 
Can you imagine being Joshua and saying, okay, I've got this. I've got to go tell the people. This is the plan. And that's what he does in verses 6 through 11. Joshua the son of Nun called the priests and said, Take up the ark of the covenant. Let seven priests bear seven trumpets of ram horns before the ark of the Lord. And he said, Go forward, march around the city. Let the armed men pass on before the ark of the Lord. Then in verse 8, as Joshua had commanded the people, the seven priests bearing the seven trumpets of ram horns before the Lord went forward, blowing the trumpets of the ark of the covenant, Lord following them. The armed men were walking before the priests who were blowing the trumpets. The rear guard was walking after the ark. While the trumpets blew continually, but Joshua commanded the people, You shall not shout or make your voice heard. Neither shall any word go out of your mouth until the day that I tell you to shout. Then you shall shout. So he called the ark of the Lord to circle the city going about once, and they came into the camp and spent the night in the camp. I don't know if, if you have, have seen this version of Veggie Tales before. But as the people walk around... You know, there's vegetables on top of the wall shouting at them. What are you doing? And they're, I think it's great slushies throwing at them, which seems to be odd. The point is from that, can you imagine silently walking around the city? What if that was the truth? What if the people of Jericho were standing on top of the wall saying, what are you doing? Hey, you bunch of crazy people. You're just walking around the city. And you couldn't say a word. I'm a pretty competitive person. And that may be the understatement of the night. But i got to tell you, somebody's kind of mocking you. You want to get back at them. i tell you what we're doing. We're going to take your city down. No talking. And there's no resistance. There's nowhere in the text that we read of some conversation between a couple of the tribe of Benjamin in the tent that night going, hey, what, do you, what do you think about this plan? I mean, Joshua finds something over here across the Jordan that's kind of got him a little crazy. See, we're just going to walk around the city, and then we're going we're to be quiet? What is that? Nobody snickers. Nobody says, you know, this walking around the city, this stinks. I came here to fight and come here to walk. Nobody does any of that. You see them strapping on their sandals and going off the wall. That's what you see. And the reality is, they kept their word. They were unified with God and unified with Joshua. They had said, where you send us, we'll go. And what you tell us to do, we will do. And they proved it. Even with a ridiculous plan. And the reality is that the walls fell down and it doesn't seem that one of them is surprised. In Joshua chapter 6 and verse 14, it says the second day they marched around the city once to return to the camp. They did it for six days. And then in verse 15, on the seventh day they rose early. At the dawn of day and marched around the city in the same manner seven times. It was only on that day that they marched around the city seven times. And at the seventh time when the priests had blown the trumpets, Joshua said to the people, Shout, for the Lord has given you the city. And they take the city. The walls collapse. And you don't read them anywhere where some guy stops and goes, what was that? No, the walls collapse. In verse 20 and 21 it tells us that then the people go in and they capture the city and they devour and destroy everything just as God had said except for what He had reserved for Him. And the point we have to take is they accepted an unusual plan without any resistance. They didn't understand it. They didn't know why it was supposed to happen this way. They didn't sit around and ask why. 
The reality is I'm not sure they knew how the city walls were going to fall down or any of that. They were just told, go and walk. There are times that things are asked of us that we don't understand. There are times that leadership will ask us to do something in their wisdom. And God's put them in that position for a reason. And our first response is to look at them and say, why? You know, the reality is if we're going to submit to leadership, why doesn't always matter? That's what we tell our kids. My nine-year-old looks at me and he says, why? And you know what my answer is? Because I said so. And then if he asks why again, I will ask him, do you want to live? Because I will kill you. You always want to think you're really honest about that now. The reality is we think the children obey your parents. And we tell our kids, it doesn't say when you understand it. It doesn't say when it makes sense. Do you realize that we are told in the New Testament to submit to our leaders, those who rule over you? But preacher, what if they ask us to do something that's wrong? I understand that. I understand that. But most often that's not the case. Most often we disagree not because it's wrong, just because it's not what we want to do. We have two choices. And the two choices are, on one side, we can stand around and we can complain and murmur about what we don't want to do and why are we doing this and, oh, why did they make this decision and be a stumbling block? Or, on the other hand, we can be unified and we can say, let's go to work and let's do this. It's up to us. How often churches have failed? Because rather than investing into what we're doing, we question what we're doing. You know, I heard members saying one time, not this week, but I could understand if you said this. I heard members saying, why are we doing gospel meetings? Why, why are we doing that? Why go into all this effort? And we, I mean, it's a sacrifice, and we bring this guy in, and all he does is get rambunctious and yell at us all the time. Why are we doing this? These meetings don't work. Special classes are held, no one supports why, What's the point of this? Let's just quit this. What's the point? I just wonder how successful those things would be if we really bought in to the plan. We really invested. If we really said, not only are we going to be here, but we're going to bring our friends and we're going to invite them. Oh, they may say no. Keep inviting them. Keep inviting them. Joshua had a plan. And he shared a plan that God had given him that the Israelites never had heard before. And they never understood. And from this time forward, there will not be another plan like Jericho. You know, you can study the, the retreats and the ambushes and all of that of AI, and you can study different battle plans, but nobody really dissects Jericho because it doesn't make sense. But it does prove complete obedience and acceptance of a plan without resistance. And I'm just simple enough in my mind to think if we act this way, we can be successful like they were. But I want you to think about also the battle of Ai. And not the battle that they lose, that will be tomorrow night. But the win at Ai. We know how they go and they lose at Ai and they lose 36 men. And they're a little skittish after that when God says, here's what you do. 
And so they decide we're going to go do this. We're going to do it God's way. We're going to use this plan. And so the city of Ai, there's a new approach. It's not like Jericho. And as the body of Christ will encounter different situations and there will be different reactions based on the situation, so is the case here with Ai versus Jericho. Not every city was the same. And it's important to understand that. There's not always just one answer. You know, I hear my brethren sometimes argue about which songbook is the one songbook we ought to use. Well, y'all have two. What's wrong with that? Not a thing. Sometimes we need to realize there's not only one answer. Now, not when it comes to doctrine, I understand that, but sometimes we forget that in other things there may be more than one way to do something. God's plan in AI is simple. It's an ambush plan. They're going to have one group that hides outside of the city, and then Joshua will go out in front with another group, and people will draw them out. As Joshua and his troops retreat, and they give the signal, and they act beaten, and the people of AI rush to beat them again like they've done before. The other group goes behind them, enters the city, and sets it on fire, locks the gate so they can't come back. And then now you've got, they're pinned against the wall, and here comes Joshua and the other troops. It's detailed here in the Scripture. I'm kind of paraphrasing that for you. I encourage you to read that. Here's what you understand about the plan, though. Some people are going to be up front with Joshua. And they're going to stand next to Joshua, the leader of Israel. They're going to be in his group. And other people are going to be hidden. And nobody's going to know they're there. It was just the organization of the battle. But only one group really got the glory. Only one group was actually going to be the group they've seen, and that actually then when they go back to stop the city from burning, they'd come back and do the killing. Only one group's going to get the glory. And that didn't bother them. Nobody sat around and said, well, who's going to get the credit for this? Because I want to be next to Joshua and be seen, so when people talk about who killed the most people, then I'm the one that gets the credit for that. At least I want to be in the right group. I want to stand next to Joshua. They didn't do that. They worked as a team to accomplish the objective. Nobody complains about their divisions. Nobody complains about where they've been put. Nobody says, you know what, I want to be in the ambush group because I'm just better at ambushing. That's my specialty. And nobody says, well, I've got to stand next to Joshua. I'm being serious here. They had different assignments, but it was one goal in mind, and they all did the same thing that they were asked to do. Different divisions. One of the really difficult things, I think, to understand is a congregation full of people of varied gifts is that we all are on the same team. We are all in this together. And it doesn't matter whose name gets in the bulletin more. It doesn't matter, you know, I hate to tell people this, but there are no bronze busts in the Hall of Fantastic Song Leaders. It doesn't exist. There are no inductions, at least that I know of, into the Gospel Preacher Hall of Fame. And I don't think, I've never, I don't think there's any plans to build the Crozer Memorial Class Annex. I mean, there is not going to be any great honors bestowed on it. We're not going to be singled out, at least we shouldn't be. When you practice biblical unity, you don't care who gets the credit. You just care that the goal is accomplished. People didn't care about who got to kill more people. They wanted to take the city of Ai and take the nation. They wanted to take the land away from all the Canaanites. They wanted to receive their inheritance. And they didn't care who got the credit for it. The reality is God got the credit. Ronald Reagan had a motto in bronze that sat on his desk in the Oval Office. 
And the quote said, there is no limit to what a man can do or where he can go if he doesn't mind who gets the credit. Well, I'll tell you, there is no limit to what a congregation of God's people can do in their community. How many people they can save and how many people they can encourage and edify and how many people, there's no limit to that as long as the people who make up that congregation don't care who gets the unity or the credit, excuse me. And that's how we have to be. Well, let's finally look at the Battle of Gideon. One of my favorites. In Joshua chapter 10, turn over there. In Joshua chapter 10, we, we've been at war now for a while, and they've made this tree with Gideon. They've gone and they check things out. They get home, and there are some Amorite kings. They make a confederacy, and they realize that, you know, the people of Israel are tired, and they've made this treaty with Gideon. I tell you what, if we attack Gideon, they have to come and defend them. And so let's attack Gideon. Well, in Joshua chapter 10, the Israelites go to battle for Gibeon. Verse 9 tells us, they came upon them suddenly, having marched all night from Gilgal. Now, this is roughly the equivalent of a normal three days journey in one night. Don't you know when they walked up, they're thinking, can we just rest? I mean, another battle now, Joshua? Another battle right now? And I want you to look at what happens to these people who are discouraged and who are depressed and who are downtrodden, who are tired, who are weary. Starting in verse 10, it says, The Lord threw them into a panic before Israel. This is the people of the, the confederacy. Who struck them with a great blow at Gideon, chased them by the way of the ascent of Beth Horeb, struck them as far as Ezekiel and Mechanah. And as they fled before Israel while they were going down the ascent of Beth Horeb, the Lord threw down large stones from heaven on them as far as Ezekiel, and they died. There are more who died because of the hailstones than the sons of Israel killed with the sword. Isn't that, you just think about that. Here is this tired group of people. They've marched all night. They're exhausted. They're weary. They're, they don't want to go to battle. And yet, how are they rescued? How are they delivered? God steps in to the rescue. These battle-fatigued men saw hailstones falling and killing more people than they killed with the sword. Don't you think they felt unstoppable? Don't you think after Jericho and Ai and now Gideon, when they see the hand of God, don't you know they felt invincible? Don't you know they felt they could walk through Canaan and take the rest of these cities? Because they had finally understood God is on their side. And then I want you to notice what Joshua does in verse 11. Start in verse 12. We've already read verse 11. Start in verse 12. At that time, Joshua spoke to the Lord in the day when the Lord gave the Amorites over to the sons of Israel, and he said in the sight of Israel, Sun stand still at Gibeon, and the moon in the valley of Ajalon, and the sun stood still, and the moon stopped until the nations took vengeance on their enemies. Is this not written in the book of Jasher? The sun stopped in the midst of heaven, did not hurry to set for about an hour a whole day. There has been no day like it or before or since when the Lord obeyed the voice of a man for the Lord fought for Israel. Sun, stand still. Moon, stand still. These people trusted the Lord to assist them without doubt. We fought, Lord. We're tired. We've waited. We've watched. We've prayed. We see the hailstones. 
And then it is that with that refocused and refreshed and re-energized faith that Joshua stands and shouts to the heavens, does not ask. He says, sun stand still. God stopped the sun. And God did. I want to be careful how I say this. But in your life, when you're facing overwhelming odds and you're battling and you're fatigued and you're tired, and somehow the rescue comes and you're able to overcome, and so often don't you know that it's not because of your own strength, but because the strength of the Lord that Paul wrote about in Philippians 4? I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. If I believe in God, I believe that. And I believe I can be invincible, not because of my abilities, not because of what I can do, because I serve a God who can make the earth stop so that the sun stands still. How big is your God? How big is your God? There is no greater joy than to work with a group of unified believers who have a spirit of invincibility. We have no reason to back off in fear or doubt. We serve and conquer by Christ. We need that spirit of invincibility. How many of us today would have the faith to shout, Sun, sun stand still! Moon stand still! That's the faith we need. How big is your God? We sit around and we wring our heads and we look at saving people in our community and we go, I just don't know if we can do it. We look at our neighbor who needs to be saved and we don't say a word because we don't know whether or not they'll actually listen to us. We look across the, the, the room at work and we see somebody who's practicing immorality openly and rather than saying something, we tell ourselves we ought to just be quiet. Do we serve a powerful God or not? If we believe this is true, and we believe He can do whatever we ask, and even beyond what we are able to ask or think, as Paul writes, then we need to have courage and stand up and realize we are unstoppable because we are with God. Is He big enough? Is your God big enough? To stop the rotation of the earth so the sun stands still. Is he big enough? Do you believe that? Is he big enough to dry up the Red Sea and the Jordan River? Do you believe that? Is he big enough to save you by grace through faith? Is he big enough to answer your prayers? If he is, he's big enough to give you the courage and wisdom to teach your neighbor. If He's that big, then we can boldly proclaim our faith in Jesus. If He's that big, then we can grow in Christ. That's not salesmanship. That's biblical enthusiasm. That's faith. When you have faith, you realize there is nothing man can do to you. What need do I have to fear of Him? What do we learn? Let me close with a few things I think we learned from this. The first is that the pursuit of unity is hard 
It's hard work, but it's worth it. Oh, we're not just going to come together automatically. And it boils down to me and you as individuals. We've got to quit giving in to temptations to grumble and complain and put down others, manipulate others. We need to quit acting like the world. Paul said that, that where strife and division and enmity exist, that we are acting like mere men. We're told to be different than the world. And if that's true, that's what brings us together. That's the unity we have. That is what will make us one that Jesus prayed about. The reality is we cannot be invincible as a people until we are unified. You have to put forth the work to be unified. And secondly, the place of humility is of highest value, but it's rarely seen. Humility and unity are closely related. One breeds the other. Neither can exist without the other. James said, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? And is it not this, that your passions are at war with you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet, cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You know, today, people tell us the way to get ahead is to fight and quarrel. The dog eat dog. Trample somebody else before they trample you. Beat them up the corporate ladder. Pull them down if you have to. Friends aren't made that way. Bonds of brotherhood are not made that way. God is not glorified that way. He's glorified when I have the ability, as Philippians 3 says, to put on the mind of Christ and count others more valuable than myself. That is the backbone of why we're here. Because Christ loved us enough to put Himself below us. To give Himself up as a sacrifice for us. To esteem us more highly than Himself. And who are we to not do that for our brethren? If He can do that for us, shouldn't I do that for you? And shouldn't you do that for me? Humility is of highest value even though it is rarely seen. We must be unified. And when we are, we will be invincible. These people took the land of Canaan under the direction and guidance of Joshua because they became a nation a unified congregation of God's people. And they followed the Lord in the leadership. And they put their minds to the task. And they loved beyond their differences. And they worked together for the greater goal. And if we want to be successful today, we must do the same thing. David wrote, Behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. How good it is. You know, brethren, I've never seen a congregation that fusses and fights grow. It cannot happen. And just as these people could not have taken Jericho had they had doubts or had they had complaints about the plan or had they been questioning the leadership or one another, just as they could not have accomplished their mission, neither will we. 
We can't take the gospel of peace and love and mercy and grace to our neighbors when they know from our language and our actions and from even the way we walk and talk that we don't serve and practice in that way. God help us to be unified so that when we are, we can get to the real work of edifying one another and saving souls that are lost.